1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. This week and every week on Biblical Anarchy, we seek to live counterculture to the empire of man and to instead unpack what the Bible teaches about government, authority, and human relationships. I am your host, Jacob Daniel. So we've had a lot of back-to-back episodes with different guests and doing a lot of focus on the culture wars and foreign policy and all that. And hope you guys have enjoyed that content today's episode going back solo and going back to the content where I focus on sort of debunking critiques of anarchism or trying to dive into anarchist and libertarian theory and arguments for both of those. And instead of going and finding like an article or a person to respond to on the internet, Because it's been trendy lately, I thought we would try to have a debate with AI. So a few weeks back, I opened up ChatGPT, which is an open AI software, and basically said, you know what, I'm just going to try to interact with this thing and see what we can come up with in terms of the critiques it would have of political anarchism, both specifically about the political view itself and then also about the compatibility with the Bible and what the Bible teaches. And I'm pretty happy with the result. So let's just dive into it here. I started out with just kind of a baseline question because a lot of times that's what people do. They're like, well, will the AI make arguments similar to what I will make? Or will it make a good case or will it dodge it and say you can do it? So I started out with the question, what is The Biblical Case for Anarchism. The response I got, Anarchism is a political philosophy that advocates for the abolition of hierarchical and coercive structures of power, such as the state, in favor of a society based on voluntary cooperation and mutual aid. While there are certainly Christians who identify as anarchists, there is no explicit biblical case for anarchism which was a little bit disappointing, but it continued. That being said, there are certain themes in the Bible that anarchists may draw on to support their beliefs. One of the most prominent is the idea of the kingdom of God, which is described as a society in which justice and peace reign and where the poor and marginalized are lifted up. This vision is often contrasted with the kingdoms of the world, which are marked by violence, exploitation, and oppression. Anarchists might see the kingdom of God as a model for the kind of a society they wish to create, one in which power is decentralized and people work together for the common good. So that was pretty good right there. And it continued to go on. Another theme that anarchists might draw on is the idea of resistance to unjust authority. Throughout the Bible, there are stories of prophets, judges, and other figures who speak out against the ruling powers of their time and call for justice and righteousness. For anarchists, this tradition of resistance can be seen as a call to reject unjust authority and to work towards a more egalitarian and just society. It's worth noting, however, that there are also many parts of the Bible that could be used to support hierarchical and authoritarian structures, such as the passages that command obedience to rulers and authorities. As with most things, the Bible is complex and can be interpreted in a variety of ways depending on one's perspectives and beliefs. So, I don't know what expectations I really had going in, but that was a good start. It kind of laid out some foundational premises that I sort of draw upon in this podcast and pushing for the biblical case for anarchy. But then there were certainly mixed in with that some fallacies, some assertions that I, of course, don't agree with. And so I decided to engage the AI in kind of a Socratic method here. So the question I asked, which I wanted to focus in on This idea of hierarchy, because it seemed to kind of focus on defining anarchy as an abolition of hierarchy and well, and then the Bible being incompatible with anarchy because the Bible is in support of hierarchy and, and authority and submission to that. So I decided to start by focusing on hierarchy. I asked, does anarchy necessarily mean the abolition of hierarchy? The AI responded. Anarchy is a political philosophy that advocates for the abolition of hierarchical and coercive structures of power, such as the state, in favor of a society based on voluntary cooperation and mutual aid. At its core, anarchism is a rejection of all forms of domination and a call for the elimination of the institutionalized forms of power that perpetrate them. While the abolition of hierarchy is a central aspect of anarchism, it is important to note that not all forms of hierarchy are necessarily harmful or oppressive. For example, a basketball team might have a coach who is in a position of authority, but who is respected by the players and whose leadership is beneficial to the team's success. In this case, the coach's authority authority is voluntary and temporary and is based on the consent of the players. Similarly, in a voluntary cooperative or collective, there may be certain individuals who take on leadership roles or responsibilities based on their skills or expertise, but their authority is not based on coercion or domination. Anarchists often refer to this kind of non-hierarchical organization as horizontal or egalitarian hierarchy, as it is based on the principle of voluntary association rather than coercion or domination. So while anarchism does advocate for the abolition of hierarchical structures of power, it does not necessarily mean the abolition of all forms of voluntary and non-coercive leadership or organization. I could nitpick that response, but overall I was actually impressed. I was like, okay, so it's not an rejection. Anarchy is not a rejection of all hierarchy or even all authority, but rather it is a rejection of hierarchy or authority that is based upon domination, coercion, and the creating structures of power. In other words, anarchism wants hierarchies that are based upon merit, upon people who are providing value to people in their community. And so they get into positions of authority because it is mutually beneficial to those around them because they're providing a service because they're servants to the people around them. And this actually, of course, mimics and echoes the example of Christ and, of course, is in line with what he taught. But I wanted to focus in then on the AI's assertion that the Bible taught in certain passages an obedience to rulers. So I asked, where does the Bible support obedience to rulers? The answer that the AI gave was there are several passages in the Bible that appear to support obedience to rulers and authorities. For example, in New Testament, Book of Romans, chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, Paul writes, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Not sure what interpretation they are using here, but... Similarly, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 15 through 22, Jesus is asked about paying taxes to Caesar the Roman ruler of the time, and he responds by saying, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. I was pleasantly surprised that they didn't leave it there. So they said that these passages have been used to support the idea of obedience to rulers and the legitimacy of political authority and in institutions. However, the AI goes on, it is important to note that these passages must be understood in the historical Cultural context. In the case of the passage from Romans, Paul is writing at a time when the early Christian church was a persecuted minority in the Roman Empire. His words can be seen as a strategy for survival in a context where rebellion against the Roman authorities could have severe consequences. It's also worth noting that the idea of divine right of kings, which held that rulers had a divine mandate to govern, was a common belief in the ancient world and may have influenced Paul's writings. Similarly, in the case of Jesus' response about paying taxes to Caesar, his words were likely intended to avoid a political trap and to emphasize the importance of putting God first. Jesus was not necessarily endorsing Caesar's rule or the legitimacy of his authority. So, Overall, while there are certainly passages in the Bible that could be used to support obedience to rulers and authorities, it's important to read these passages in their historical and cultural context and to consider broader themes of justice, love, and compassion that run through the Bible. I thought that was interesting there, how it kind of argued against itself and brought up in the Romans argument. I mean, I I don't too much care for the idea that like, oh, Paul probably viewed the empire as legitimate as most people did that's whatever we'll leave that aside but including the argument that the word could be seen as a strategy for survival in a place where they were being persecuted it's often been theorized that paul was trying to be coy here and sort of say like do what is right no matter what even when you're being persecuted and sort of like a wink wink nudge nudge that like you know well the Governing authorities aren't a terror to those who do good, even though clearly they were a terror to the Christians, but this is just kind of like, Hey, we're supposed to kind of echoing Romans 12. We're supposed to rise above that. Do not repay evil for evil, uh, rather overcome evil with good. And to do good is to continue to spread the gospel and to be obedient to Christ. So then, and then obviously I've done an episode on the render unto Caesar passage, and they basically made the argument that I made, which is that Jesus is avoiding a political trap and, telling us that rightfully we must give to God what is God's and really this is not cannot be at least taken as a strong endorsement of Caesar's authority. So I decided then to ask, does Romans 13 support the state? Because I wanted to dig more into Romans 13. I was kind of happy with the answer that they gave on the Matthew passage about rendering to Caesar. So I wanted to hone in on Romans 13 because that is, of course, the boogeyman. The answer that the AI gave Romans 13 is a frequently cited passage in discussions about the relationship between the Christian faith and the state. In this passage, the Apostle Paul writes about the role of government and the duty of Christians to submit to its authority. Specifically, in verses 1 and 2, he writes, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. This passage has been interpreted in a variety of ways but some Christians have used it to support the idea that the state is ordained by God and that Christians have a duty to obey its laws and authority. However, it is important to note that this interpretation is not universally accepted and there are alternative ways of understanding this passage. One alternative interpretation, this is the AI still, of Romans 13 is that it should be understood as a call for Christians to live peaceably within society and to avoid engaging in rebellious or subversive behavior. This interpretation emphasizes the importance of being good citizens and upholding the common good, but it does not necessarily imply that, that the state is inherently good or that Christians should support it unconditionally. Another alternative interpretation is that Paul was writing in a specific historical context in which the early Christian community was a persecuted minority of the Roman Empire. In this context, Paul's words can be seen as a strategy for survival and for avoiding persecution rather than an endorsement of the Roman state's legitimacy or authority. Overall, while there is certainly, again, at the end of almost every response, they do this like, well, it's open to interpretation. And there's many different perspectives. I'm not going to necessarily read that each time unless it's relevant. Mm -hmm. So the next thing that I asked AI, because we're focusing in on Romans 13 still. So, again, I'm trying to, instead of just argue with the AI, I'm trying to sort of like lead it down a line of questioning that will perhaps make it reconsider some of the answers that it's given. So I asked, does Romans 13 say that the governing authorities aren't a terror to good works? Because again, this is an important question to ask. If Romans 13 is about the state and it says that the governing authorities, thus the state is not a terror to good works. We then have to figure out how that squares. So, The answer the AI gave was yes. In Romans 13, verses three through four, the apostle Paul writes that the governing authorities are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. And the passage continues, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. This passage has been interpreted in various ways, but one common understanding is that it suggests that the role of governing authorities is to maintain social order and to punish wrong good. I mean, wrong, wrongdoing. Paul argues that those who do good have no reason to fear the authorities, while wrongdoers should be afraid of punishment. However, it is important to note that this passage is part of a broader discussion. And again, it repeats the context of Paul's talking about this in the context of the Roman empire and wanting to avoid persecution. Furthermore, while this passage has been used to support the idea of obedience to the state, it is important to balance it with other biblical teachings about justice, love, compassion. Christians are called to be agents of God's love and justice in the world, and this sometimes may require challenging the actions of governing authorities when they are unjust or oppressive. Ultimately, the meaning and application of Romans 13 and biblical passages must be carefully discerned in light of broader teachings of scripture. So I started to hone in here. I want to I focus in on this idea of, is the state a tear to those who do good? And I just asked it straight up, is the state a tear to those who do good? Like, let's see if the state can be made to be consistent with the text of scripture here as described in Romans 13. The answer is, in some cases, the state can be a tear to those who do good, particularly in situations where the government is unjust or oppressive. This can be seen throughout history, where governments have sometimes punished people for acts of charity or kindness that are seen as a threat to their power. However, it is also true that in many cases the state provides a framework for social order and protection and is not inherently opposed to those who do good. The biblical passage in Romans 13, for example, suggests that the government authority is not a terror to those who do good, but rather to those who do evil— it is important to note, however, that the interpretation is open to interpretation, blah, 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 blah. The caveats get annoying after a while, that the eye just kind of is programmed to do that. Okay, so I asked, if the state is a terror to good works, can Romans 13 be used to defend the state? So it's kind of like a syllogism, like if we were to establish the state is a terror to good works, can Romans 13 be used to defend the state? The answer the EI gave was, if the state is a terror to good works, it would be difficult to use Romans 13 to defend the actions of that state. As mentioned earlier, Romans 13 suggests that the role of the governing authorities is to maintain social order and to punish wrongdoing, and that those who do good have no reason to fear the authorities. If the state is actively punishing those who do good or is itself a source of injustice and oppression, it would be difficult to reconcile its actions— with the biblical principles outlined in Romans 13. It is important to remember that while the Bible does speak about the role of governing authorities, it also contains numerous examples of individuals and communities challenging the actions of the state when they are unjust or oppressive. For example, the Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1 refused to obey the order of Pharaoh to kill all the male Hebrew infants, and Daniel continued to pray to God even when it was made illegal by the king of Babylon. And then again, The caveat is given. So, and there was a lot there that I was like, okay, bringing up some good examples of civil disobedience to unjust authority that is present in the Bible, which I think is, again, I was was a little bit of back and forth of me being impressed and annoyed with the answers that the AI is giving. So my line of questioning continued. Is there any state that has ever existed that has not been a terror so that hasn't been a terror to those who do good. And I made a note to myself when I asked this, that it like a lot of the answers, it would like start spouting things off right away. This one, it was like 10 seconds of just like dot like dots and it was just like, that mm-hmm. <laughs> it responded, it is difficult to find a state that has never been a terror to those who do good as the actions of government throughout history have often been marked by injustice, oppression and violence Many governments have used their power to suppress dissent, stifle freedom of expression, and punish those who work for justice and the common good. It's important, however, to recognize that governments can be complex entities and their impact on those who do good can be multifaceted. While some actions of the state may be oppressive or unjust, other actions might provide a framework for social order. Worth noting that throughout history, there have been examples of people within the government who have worked to promote justice and the common good, even in the face of opposition and Persecution. While these individuals may not have been able to completely eradicate the injustices of the system, their efforts have often contributed to progress and positive change over time. And so, again, I'm skipping all the caveats. I asked, it seems to be now trying to like shoehorn this thing of like, well, the state does some bad things, but we need the state for social order. And the state sometimes does good things. So, the AI yeah, is kind of like trying to put this in there to counterbalance the point that I've brought up, which is that like, okay, but the state. Is a terror to those who do good? So I asked, is the state necessary to create a social order or to administer civil justice? Again, those are the two things it keeps bringing up. We need stability and social order, and we need to administer justice. We need to punish criminals, etc. <laughs> I just love the way that the AI couches everything. So the answer that it gives here, the question of whether the state is necessary to create Social order or administer civil justice is a complex one, and different people may have different opinions on the matter. Really? Like, it's just such an obvious statement. Like, different people have different opinions. People disagree. It's like, yes, (laughs) we know. All right, so some would argue that the state is indeed necessary for creating social order and administering civil justice. They might point out that the state provides a framework for creating and enforcing laws that promote order, stability, and protection for citizens. Without this framework, they argue chaos and conflict would ensue, making it difficult for people to live peaceful and secure lives. Others might argue that the state is not the only means of creating social order and administering justice. They might point out that other forms of organization and governance, such as community-based organizations, non-governmental organizations, or informal systems of justice can also play a role in creating, maintaining, creating and maintaining social order and administering justice. So I asked, it was like, okay, it's open-minded to the idea that there are other options, so let's dig into that. Can there be competing decentralized governmental structures that enforce social order without devolving into chaos? And this is at the heart of why I believe that anarchy is a valid political theory, is that it's divorcing governance from the state— and that we can have institutions we can have organizations we can have mechanisms of delivering and administering civil justice and of of law and of organizing but they don't have to be tied to this monopoly of violence that the state really is and so it's like can do we need to have this centralized entity can we rather have self-governing decentralized market forces or local voluntary government st- governmental structures that enforce social order without devolving into chaos. I obviously think so. The term that I've used before is a polycentric legal order. And so that's really what anar- anarchism is, not just no rules, everyone goes out and does whatever they want. No, there's still, we've talked about this many times, anarchy is not a denial of the need for rules and law and order. It's just merely the rejection of the idea that it has to be this centralized monopoly over governance and over the initiation of force in a geographic area. So, which is what the state is. The answer the AI gave is that it is possible for there to be competing, decentralized governmental structures that enforce social order without devolving into chaos would require a great deal of coordination and cooperation among different structures, as well as a shared commitment to the principles of justice, equity, and the common good. Now, right away, just reading that, it's like, okay, is there like a presupposition here that for the state to enforce social order, that there isn't the need for some sort of like, at least a somewhat considerable amount of effort to go into coordinating Things and cooperating with different people, and that the people have to be committed to the principles of justice and goodness. And I don't know how I feel about equity; depends on how you define it. But like, if you have a culture, let's just think about this for a second here. If you have a culture of people who are not committed to justice, not committed to the common good, they're just a bunch of evil, degenerate people. Well, is passing laws that say like behave and like just instituting a state going to solve this problem? Like you're going to take a culture of people where the majority of people aren't committed to the common good and pass laws and suddenly they'll comply? I mean, I suppose you could say might makes right, but then it's like, okay, well, where are the people coming from that are going to enforce this? Because if the culture isn't predominantly devoted to these things, then how are you sure that the government is going to be made up of people who are committed to those things? and that they're going to have the power and the resources needed to use that state power for good. seems much more likely to me that if the majority of people aren't committed to justice and the common good, that the people who have resources and stuff and the people that have connections, they'll either end up in those positions of power or they will, people of questionable moral integrity will end up in those positions of power and they'll end up in the Financial pockets of those who would rather that power be used to favor them than used to promote the common good. So, and honestly, that's a critique that applies to today's system here in America and across the world. So it's like, I think that there is a little bit of special pleading here in terms of the question. I mean, the way that the question that I asked got answered by the AI. But let me continue reading the answer here. So the answer continues here in a decentralized system, different groups or communities might have their own systems of governance, each with its own set of rules and mechanisms for enforcing those rules to prevent chaos and conflict. It would be necessary for those different structures to coordinate their efforts and work together to create a coherent framework for social order and civil justice. This could potentially be achieved through various means such as intercommunity agreements, mutual aid networks, or umbrella organizations that provide a platform for different communities to come together and work towards common goals. Such arrangements would require a willingness to compromise, a commitment to peaceful resolution of disputes, and a recognition of interdependence of different communities and their shared responsibility in creating a just and equitable society. Overall, while a decentralized system of governance could potentially work, it would require a significant shift in the way we think about power, authority, and social order, as well as a willingness to experiment with new forms of organization and collaboration. So my next question here is, again, this is another very important point in the conversation of anarchism, libertarianism versus statism. I asked, don't different states already have their own systems of governance? each with its own set of rules and mechanisms for enforcing rules. Because again, the answer that the AI gave was that like, well, there's going to be different groups that have different rules and different mechanisms for enforcing those rules. So they're going to have to coordinate with each other, right? Like, and then that might be hard. So I was like, okay, well, we don't live in a one world government right now. Like there's not a global state. So don't we already have different sovereign states that already have their own systems of governance and their own rules and mechanisms for enforcing the rules. So how do we prevent chaos from breaking out now? And why would that not apply to these different groups in a theoretical polycentric legal society? The AI answers, different states do indeed have their own systems of governance, each with its own set of rules and mechanisms for enforcing those rules. However, the prevention of chaos between different states is not solely based upon their own systems of governance, but rather on a complex web of factors that include political, economic, cultural, and military considerations. One of the key factors that prevents chaos between different states is the system of international law and diplomacy that has developed over time. This system provides a framework for regulation of relationships between states, including rules governing territorial integrity, human rights, trade, and conflict resolution. While the system is far from perfect and is often subject to criticism, it does provide a measure of stability and predictability in international relations. Additionally, the international system is underpinned by a complex web of political, economic, and military relationships, including alliances, treaties, and trade agreements. These relationships help to maintain a balance of power between different states, as well as create incentives for cooperation and mutual respect. Furthermore, there are a variety of international organizations, such as the United Nations and its various agencies, that play a role in mediating conflicts and promoting cooperation between different states. These organizations provide a platform for dialogue and negotiation, as well as support for economic development, environmental protection, and other issues of global concern. Overall, the protection of chaos between different states is the result of a complex interplay of factors, including, and it just kind of repeats itself there, and how it's a system that's trying to mitigate risk. So there was a lot there. That was a mouthful that the AI just gave us. First of all, I had to just kind of like bite my tongue at all the like mentions like, oh, look at the United Nations and all these different, I was like half expecting it to bring up NATO and just <laughs> talk about how we, we all these international agreements that work to keep the peace, even though they clearly don't seem to be doing a very good job right about now. As if you were a listener to the show regularly, you've heard my interviews with Liam McCollum and Scott Horton and other anti-war activists and know uh, what kind of mismanagement and chaos these supposed international peacekeeping organizations have got us into, but we'll leave that aside for now. So I was like, okay, this seems to be just kind of dodging my question. It's like, yes, you're expounding upon the need for cooperation and you're saying like, well, the states cooperate with each other and they form relationships and they form groups and stuff that allow them to talk to one another and there's just a lot of factors at play, economic considerations, political considerations and they deal with diplomacy and it's like, okay, like, y- yes, I, I, trade agreements and all this, I, I I get that. So what do you, I, I was like, I don't know what the AI is getting at here. It's like, okay, is, so what I asked, I'm trying to like, get the AI to focus back in, Is there a difference between different states with competing legal systems and competing legal systems or legal structures that would exist in an anarchist or polycentric legal order society? The AI answered this, yes, there is a significant difference between the competing legal systems that might exist in different states and the competing legal structures that would exist in an anarchist or polycentric society. Legal Order Society. In a system of competing states, each state has its own legal system and mechanism for enforcing its laws, but there's an overarching structure of international law and diplomacy that regulates relations between states. This system is based on a recognition of the existence of states as sovereign entities and their right to determine their own laws and policies within their own borders. In an anarchist or polycentric legal order society, There would not be a centralized authority to enforce laws or mediate disputes between different legal structures. Instead, different communities or groups might develop their own legal systems and mechanisms for enforcing those laws based on their own values, customs, and traditions. These legal systems might compete or overlap with each other, creating a complex web of relationships and obligations. One of the challenges of such a system is that there would be no overarching framework to regulate these relationships, and conflicts between different legal structures could potentially escalate into violence or chaos. To prevent this, it would be necessary for there to be a shared commitment to nonviolence, mutual respect, and the rule of law, as well as mechanisms for mediating disputes and resolving conflicts peacefully. Overall, the difference between competing legal systems in different states and the competing legal structures that might exist in an anarchist or polycentric legal order society lies in the absence of a centralized authority to regulate these relationships in the latter case. While this creates challenges, it also provides opportunities for experimentation, innovation, and the development of more localized and responsive systems of justice and governance. So again, a lot there. It described I think the difference is there well. It basically that the states are a territorial monopoly and that in a polycentric legal order, the competing legal systems aren't tied to a geography. And then there's also not a centralized authority. Although I appreciated a lot of what it said, but I was like, okay, I gotta hone in on this idea that like we need a centralized authority, because now you're kind of arguing for globalism or like a global, like one world order. So I asked, so to advocate for the necessity of the state means there must be a centralized authority that rules over all of the states. The AI answered, not necessarily. Advocating for the necessity of the state can mean different things to different people and political systems. In some cases, it may involve a centralized authority that rules over all of the states, as in a federal government, In other cases, it might involve a more decentralized system of government where power is distributed among different levels of authority or different branches of government. This answer is not even worth reading because it just kind of keeps repeating itself and it's sort of like one of those generic non-answers. So I tried to get more specific answers here. I said, wouldn't a polycentric legal order involve treaties, arrangements, and contracts between competing governmental institutions? The AI said, Yes, a polycentric legal order would likely involve treaties, arrangements, and contracts between different institutions or legal structures. In the absence of a centralized authority, these agreements would be necessary to establish rules and norms for interactions between different legal systems and to resolve disputes that might arise. These agreements could take many different forms, depending on the nature of the legal structures involved and the issues they need to address. And then it goes on to kind of describe the idea of these polycentric legal organizations that would pop up would develop differently. They would respond to the wants and the needs of the people, and they could change over time. And so it would actually talk to some of the benefits here. Like at this part, it says, over time, the process of negotiating and enforcing these agreements would help to build trust and cooperation between different legal systems. And But there's great room for experimentation and growth. So, okay, I was like, all right, so how is that? Pro- I asked, how is that process different than the process that nation states engage in with each other? After all, states have also competing and varying legal structures, right? Like, I'm trying to like take a roundabout route here to get it to catch where I think it's contradicting itself. So, AI answered the process of negotiation and cooperation between different legal systems in a polycentric legal order is similar to the process. Of that nation states engage in with each other in some ways, but there are also some important differences. Again, repeating itself, it's not tied to geographic territories. So instead, it would be like based on cultural or ideological values, or they might just urge organically from other voluntary orga- associations or other forms of social organization. This means the process of negotiating and enforcing agreements between different legal structures in a polycentric legal order may be more flexible and adaptable than the process of nation-states, well, it sounds like a plus to me, which are typically defined by specific territorial boundaries and populations. Another difference is that the legal structures in a polycentric legal order may be more equal than between nation-states, which, again, that doesn't sound like a bad thing, because earlier it said that one of the things it wants to promote is equity. So it's like, okay, equity, equal distribution of power, what's the problem here? nation states often have vastly different levels of economic and military power. Polycentric legal order, however, they'd be more fluid. And so it says the power dynamic would be based on factors of reputation, expertise, and social capital. So it's like, yeah, these would have to compete in the market. They'd have to earn their money. They can't just tax people. They have to get people to voluntary, voluntarily sign up and make contracts with them. So they have to provide a service. So they're subject to market forces, and competition promotes healthy, like growth and people trying to get better and better and better at providing the service at cheaper costs. So this is good. And people are held accountable if they're going to lose money, if their reputation suffers, they're going to lose money if they don't provide a good service. Right now, the only thing you have is voting people out, but you kind of vote the same group of people in every other year or so. So it's like, there's no real accountability. Everyone who goes into Washington, D.C. or goes into the swamp, so to speak, they come out rich. So they don't suffer any real consequences for doing something that, you know, providing, failing to live up to like their end of the bargain, so to speak. So I tried to press on here. So in essence, a polycentric legal order would be enforced by competition and market forces such as reputation, customer satisfaction, and fiduciary responsibility, compared to a society of nation-states where power, fiat, and increasing centralization due to power imbalances are driving factors. AI literally says word for word, yes, that is a good way to summarize it. In a polycentric legal order, competition and market forces such as reputation, customer satisfaction, and fiduciary responsibility would be important driving factors, in the enforcement of laws and the resolution of disputes between different legal structures. Legal structures that provide effective and reliable services would be more likely to attract and gain a good reputation, while those who provide poor service or act unfairly would be more likely to lose customers and face reputational harm. In contrast, in a society of nation-states, Power, fiat, and increasing centralization due to power imbalances can be significant factors in the enforcement of laws and the resolution of disputes between different states. By contrast, in a polycentric legal order, there is no central authority that can impose its will on others, and legal structures would be more likely to rely on voluntary agreements and dispute resolution mechanisms to resolve conflicts. This could potentially result in a more decentralized bottom-up system that is more responsive to the needs and the interests of local communities and social groups. Sounds like I got the AI arguing for the superiority of polycentric legal systems over these antiquated systems of nation states and monopolies over violence. (laughs) So I tried to bring it back to the Bible here, right? So I said, so the Bible speaks of the need for hierarchy, rules, and government. But this isn't incompatible with the ideas of anarchy and a polycentric legal order, which can provide those things and provide them in ways more compatible with the other themes in the Bible, such as compassion, love, and an opposition to unjust authority and oppression. And the AI said, yes, that's a reasonable way to think about it. The Bible certainly contains passages that speak of the importance of hierarchy rules in government, but it also contains many passages that emphasize the importance of compassion, love, and opposition to unjust authority and oppression. Anarchy and polycentric legal order can potentially provide a way of organizing society that allows for the expression of these values in a more meaningful and cohesive way. In a polycentric legal order, rules and governance would still exist. It's given up the argument right there, right? In a polycentric legal order, rules and governance would still exist, but they would be more decentralized and more responsive to the needs and the interests of local communities and social groups. The system would be less reliant on the use of force and coercion and more reliant on voluntary agreements and dispute resolution mechanisms, and this could create a more just and compassionate society that is less prone to the abuses of power and the oppression of marginalized groups that can occur in centralized systems of government. Now, it does do some caveats here. It's important to recognize there are many different interpretations of the Bible. Some Christians might interpret the Bible in a way that leads them to favor more centralized systems of government. So we don't need to read all the caveats there. Actually, it did this glitch here where it gave the same answer twice. So. But yeah, that was, I think, a pretty interesting sort of journey there, right? Like the only thing that I couldn't really get it to hone in on there, which I'll talk a little bit about here at the end, but I couldn't get it to catch its sort of air here, which was like they say, like, oh, well, states are able to work out their own problems, but like it kind of like, okay, well, how do they do that? Well, it needs a centralized authority. Like, well, then you're it's almost like you're saying if polycentric legal systems don't work because there's no centralized authority. It's like, well, then why do nation states work? Don't you need one global government? And like the AI was kind of like saying the quiet part out loud there. Like you don't usually hear that from people who are defending statism. They don't usually just say, oh, you need a centralized authority to negotiate between all the nation states. But it kind of is the rational, logical conclusion that you would have to come to. Otherwise, and the AI basically conceded this point that, yeah, the competing nature of different nation states today is very similar to what you would have in a polycentric legal order. And then in all the ways that it's different, the AI basically concedes that it's going to be better. (laughs) <laughs> like it was funny because I would read the responses and get a little angry be like what do you mean they're very different I was like oh you're saying they're different like because they're better they're more responsive they're more able to be held accountable they're more compatible with the themes of justice and love and compassion and resistance to unjust authority that are in the Bible and so yeah I mean we basically conclude here with that the AI has basically made the case of biblical anarchy for us. (laughs) That yes, the Bible does teach us about the need for civil justice and that there are those who God ordains over to administer civil justice. And so we need those people to do that. But the Bible does not in Romans 13 or anywhere else prescribe the form that the governing authorities have to come in. And it does hold the governing authorities in that prescription in Romans 13 to be accountable to the idea that they are not a terror to those who do good. So if we're looking at the system of nation states and comparing that to the idea of libertarianism or a polycentric legal order, what I would call anarchism or anarcho-capitalism, and the idea of governing authorities being subject to these market forces and really just eliminating that power imbalance. The AI agrees with me. The AI agrees with the case for biblical anarchy. So that's pretty much all we have for today's episode. I thought that interaction would intrigue you. If anyone wants, I will post screenshots of the entire, some of the parts I summarized because I didn't want to make the episode longer than it already is. So I will... Be putting the full text of the conversation in a like a word document or something that people can read the whole thing if they want to i'm probably going to do some more i actually have already done some more arguments with the ai on different things related to biblical anarchy and libertarian theory and i'll probably do some episodes on that in the future as well so anyways let me know what you thought about this episode it was just an idea i had that i thought would be cool let me know if you enjoyed it. You know, let me know if you if the audio-only format of this was okay or if it would be better to do it in a video format where you can kind of see the responses on a screen. Uh, I was kind of playing back and forth with that idea. But yeah, so AI, you, know, you can tell people when you're uh, talking to your friends and family that AI, or AI overlords have told us the way. It's a polycentric legal order. So thank you everyone for listening and we will be back next week with more content. Peace.
0: The Biblical Anarchy Podcast is a part of the Christians for Liberty Network, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. If you love this podcast, it helps us reach more with a message of freedom when you rate and review us on your favorite podcast apps and share with others. If you want to support the production of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast, please consider donating to the Libertarian Christian Institute at biblicalanarchypodcast.com, where you can also sign up to receive special announcements and resources related to biblical anarchy. Thanks for tuning in.